and they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. And his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. Now, this is a unique story we don't see anywhere else in the Gospels because it's the only two-part healing. I mean, not the part about Peter saying that he's the Messiah. We see that every... Okay. But, but the, the, the healing of the blind man story. Um, now, why does this healing take place in two parts? Because it's another acted out parable. One of the overarching themes of the Gospel of Mark has been the blindness of Yeshua's own people and even his own disciples, you know, to the truth about who he is and what he's doing. You know, blindness, as we will see over and over again, you know, leaves us, leaves all of us by degrees, you know, one step at a time. No sooner do we think that we see clearly than we find out one more thing that we're not right about. You know, thank goodness, though, or we would definitely stop seeking and clinging to Yahweh. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of our Messiah. Now, if you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it. It's called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and for kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that um, teaches them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. Do you know whenever I say that, you know, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV. I always, I always think about Sesame Street. Sesame Street, um, came out the year that I was born. So I grew up with Sesame Street. And I always think it says, courtesy of the letters E, S, and V. <laughs> and also the number 12, because we're going to be talking about the disciples this week. 
Now, the two accounts that precede this one and the one that directly follows make this like the most ironic episode in the whole of historical literature, okay? Now, first, we have the miraculous feedings of the 4,000 followed by the Pharisees demanding a sign because feeding 4,000 people just isn't remarkable enough. And yeah, I know it happened in a different district, so they probably didn't see it. And then we have Yeshua warning his disciples about the poisonous kingdom expectations of the Pharisees and the Herodians that are at odds with the realities of God's kingdom. You know, only to have them thinking he's passively aggressively, passive aggressively rebuking them about forgetting to bring bread as though he can't make the one loaf they brought enough to feed a measly 13 people. So, you know, we all have blindness. And, and this week we will see a man who could see once and has been blinded like Israel. You know, we'll see him regain his sight little by little until his sight is fully restored. And Peter will properly identify Yeshua at long last as the promised Messiah. However, blindness still remains. And in the very next account, which we will get to um, the week next week or the week after next. I can't remember. Um, he'll show that the blindness still lingers because he has no understanding of what kind of Messiah Yeshua needs to be in order to save both his own people and the world. So, immediate background here. Um, Yeshua has just faced a dangerous confrontation with the Pharisees where they are demanding a sign from heaven. He refused and they got into the boat and the disciples were being entirely clueless about the important life lesson that Yeshua was trying to teach them. It wasn't that they didn't understand the lesson. No, they didn't even realize there'd been a lesson. So um, let's start where we're still in uh, chapter eight. And we're verse 22 here. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So they crossed from the western shore of the Sea of Galilee in the district of Dalmanuta. And, and no one knows where this is, by the way. Uh, and, and they went to the northern shore at Bethsaida, Julius, which... Um, Josephus wrote about in Antiquities uh, 18.2.1. By the way, I never realized how important geography was to studying the scriptures until um, I started studying the temple. And I realized how little I knew about Jerusalem and the whole temple set up. And then I realized, you know what? I just read these stories like they're not real, like they didn't happen in a real place. And so... I absolutely encourage you to get a good biblical atlas and just follow along. It really adds a lot. And there are things you miss if you don't know the geography. Anyway, back to the, back to the main teaching here. <laughs> All right. So Josephus wrote this. When Cyrenius had now disposed of Archelaus's money and when the taxings were come to a conclusion, which were made in the 37th year of Caesar's victory over Antony at Actium, he deprived Joazar of the high priesthood 
which dignity had been conferred on him by the multitude, and he appointed Ananus, the son of Set, to be high priest. This is, of course, the, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. When Herod and, while Herod and Philip had each of them received their own tetrarchy and settled the affairs thereof, Herod also built a wall around Sephorus, which is the security of all Galilee, and he made it the metropolis of the country. He also built a wall around Betarantha, which was itself a city also, and called it Julius, from the name of the emperor's wife. When Philip also had built Peneus, a city at the fountains of the Jordan, he named it Caesarea. He also advanced a village of Bethsaida, situated at the lake of Genesareth, unto the dignity of a city, both by the number of inhabitants it contained and its other grandeur, and called it by the name of Julius, the same name as with Caesar's daughter. Uh, considering the fact that this is not only the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip, and near the site of the feeding of the 5,000, I imagine um, that when they rode into town, it created all sorts of drama. Although Bethsaida was technically on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, it was just barely across the Jordan River to the north. It was an administrative center for the Roman province of Golanitis. So now, naming the city for Julia, a.k.a. Livia, potentially the deadliest woman who ever lived, the uh, wife of Augustus Caesar and the mother of Tiberius, you know, if she had married Herod the Great, who knows which one would have made it out alive? But naming this city after her was a smart move politically because she was incredibly powerful. But this isn't really very important, just, you know, super cool. <laughs> and remember that this is where Yeshua escaped to after the murder of John the Baptist when the situation got too hot in Galilee. All right, so back to the story. And the people brought a blind man to him, okay? So I like to call this episode Ephratha, um, the sequel, because there we had problems with hearing and speech cured. Now we have blindness. The Isaiah 6 curses are being prophetically addressed one by one. Um, so let's go to Isaiah 6 here. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Okay, that's Isaiah 6, 9b through 10. Now, Yeshua's come not only to deliver, but to restore. Of all the people on earth, the ones who shouldn't be blind are God's chosen people. And yet, in a lot of ways, they are just as blind as the outside world. It's only because of their cultural upbringing that their eyes are open to the reality of Yahweh at all. And we see the same thing today with kids brought up in religious homes. You know, it doesn't mean that it all clicks, that they all get it. No matter what the parents do right, and some kids do it despite of their parents doing everything wrong. God is the one who removes blindness and opens deaf ears, as Yeshua shows us. So parents, that's, that's, that's a really good thing to pray for. Please remove the blindness, not only from myself, but from my children. 
you know, it's the kind of prayer he likes to answer. All right, so we're going to repeat the first verse again along with the second and see six of the seven parallels in wording between this account and the healing of the deaf man with the speech impediment. So we're going to do verse 22 and 23 of chapter 8. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Okay, so the blind man, blind man is brought to Yeshua. The people begged Yeshua. They wanted him to touch the blind man. Yeshua leads the man out of the village to perform the miracle. Spit is involved. Yeshua lays hands on him. In verse 25, he will tell the man not to go back into the village, a.k.a., you know, don't blab about this. This isn't just a coincidence. The similarity in language tells us that these two healings are intimately related. And we're supposed to read them as a unit. But what else do we see here? You know, I love that Yeshua personally takes this blind man by the hand and personally leads him outside the village. In a world where the disabled were dishonored, Yeshua extend on, extends honor and restoration. Now, why outside the village? That's well, an interesting question. It's called a village not because it was small, um, it had all the trappings of a city, but administratively it was run like a village. And, you know, we got a clue of that from reading Josephus. But it was an administrative center. And so there was the potential for trouble with the Roman military if people went crazy over the healing and tried to make him their king. He just got out of, <coughs> excuse me out of Dalmanuta, the district of Dalmanuta, after a life-threatening challenge, and so he has to be careful. As we will see, it's vitally important that he get to Caesarea Philippi unmolested. He can't afford an incident or a delay now. Psalm 146, verse 8, says that it is the Lord who opens the eyes of the blind, and, and no prophets had ever cured blindness, so... Again, this is a self-manifesting miracle where Yeshua shows that he is Yahweh in the flesh, the unique son of God. He spits, and okay, enough with a spit already, yuck. And he lays his hands on the man and asks if he can see anything, which is so strange. Yeshua nowhere else asks if somebody, if they're healed. They just are, and he knows it, and so we, we know that there is a bigger message here, which we will get to in a few minutes. Okay, verse 24, and he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. This is important. This man wasn't always blind. People born blind, one, don't know when they are looking at human beings for the first time, and two, don't know when they're looking at trees either. So this is either an injury or some disease of the eye that came on later in life. Notice that there was no exorcism and no mention of the man sinning. 
stuff happens. And so, and there's no rebuke about his lack of faith. So again, bigger picture. And we begin to suspect that this is an acted out parable. Yeshua is teaching us a spiritual truth through this real life physical healing. Verse 25. Then Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. On the second attempt, notice that Yeshua doesn't ask him any questions. This now looks like one of his normal miracles. Normal miracles, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I do normal miracles all the time. No, not. I mean, for, for Yeshua, it's normal. Let's, let's go back there. Okay. Um, you know, but it looks like one of his normal miracles where he does his thing and the person's healed without a hitch. And we look at this and it's easy to see that the underlying lesson is that of the, you know, it's, it's the progressive revelation that comes with being touched by Yeshua. Like I mentioned before, our blindness comes off in layers. Many of the Pharisees who questioned, <coughs> excuse me, and challenged, um, ended up seeing the light and following him after the resurrection. So did a great many priests. We see that in Acts, both of those. Remember about insiders and outsiders. Insiders like Judas can become outsiders, and outsiders like many of the Pharisees and priests can become insiders. No one is doomed to be an outsider forever. No matter how someone looks to us in the here and now, we have no idea what they will be. Okay, but God knows. This is why we can't condemn. Once God lifts a person's blind, oh, oh, once God lifts a person's blindness, some will kind of stand still. You know, people who look so promising and others who look like the devil himself will become the greatest of saints. You know, it's kind of like the NFL draft. You just don't know who's going to pan out. Um, we can't write anyone off because we are just clueless. Spiritual blindness is crippling. And some people run when the shackles come off and some will sit on Facebook and argue, oh yes, I went there. Again. So, real quick here. Let's talk about acted out parables. We see them in other places in scripture, not just here. Both the feedings of the four and five thousand were acted out parables of the coming of the messianic banquet that will include both Jews and Gentiles. In Isaiah 20, we find out that Isaiah has walked around naked as a jaybird, as assigned to Egypt and Cush, that when they go into exile via the agency of the Assyrians, you know, well, that they would go, sorry. Um, in Jeremiah 19, Jeremiah is um, commanded to buy a flask and to shatter it in front of the Jewish elders and priests as a sign that Yahweh would crush Jerusalem because of their idolatry. In Ezekiel 4 and 5, we have back-to-back -back acted out parables. First, we have Ezekiel acting out a siege against Jerusalem and then laying on one side and then the other representing the judgments against Israel and Judah. All during the 390 days of laying on his left side, he had to eat real Ezekiel bread, not the fake stuff in the stores. Real Ezekiel bread is cooked over poop and is not meant to be a positive thing. <laughs> Moral of the story. Just because it's in the Bible and has a Bible verse on it doesn't mean the context is correct or positive. 
Then in the next chapter, he has to cut his hair and burn it in the city as a sign of judgment. And in Ezekiel 12, he had to pack his bag, dip, dig a hole in the wall, and leave the city at night as a sign that they would be going into exile. Fun, fun stuff. But yeah, you preach the truthful truthiness of your truth under a fake Jewish name on Facebook, and I guess that's hard too. I'm just feeling surly today, and I'm not going to apologize. All right. <laughs> and I hope it doesn't apply to you guys. If it does, take it to heart, okay? Okay, so verse 26. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is the seventh and final link to the Ephrathah episode. Except that this time, it looks like the guy didn't blab. Good on you, mate. All right? But I think this is important because he can't afford for everyone to put all the pieces together the way his disciples finally will in a few minutes here. And it was all because of the last miracle, even though they won't fully understand until after the resurrection. Look at Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6 here. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then too shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. All of this has happened. The healing of the paralytic, the healing of the deaf man, the man with the speech impediment enabled to um, speak freely, and now the blind healed. Now we understand all these self-manifesting miracles. Yeshua has proclaimed and proved himself to be Yahweh in the flesh by doing what only Yahweh can do and fulfill, fulfilling these promises of Yahweh. This is not a mere prophet or even the greatest of prophets. This is not just an obedient man blessed with power from on high. This is the one unique son of God, the visible image of the invisible God. He performs these works and he performs them effortlessly without stumbling and falling like we do and failing. I will tell you that I have laid hands on people and they were healed. It doesn't happen very often, but it has happened. Yeshua never failed. It always worked. Even when he wasn't trying and someone just touched him, it worked. But these verses speak not only of healing the blind, deaf, mute, and lame. They talk about vengeance. The Jewish messianic hopes tended to center around the idea of someone who would take vengeance on people. But Yeshua came with vengeance against the spiritual authorities who were using people to do their evil works. Yeshua came violently against demons, not against people. Prophecy was being fulfilled, but in an entirely unexpected way. All the people who say that Yeshua never said he was this or that, the more I study, the more I just can't agree. He didn't have to spell everything out because he acted everything out. And he acted it out in front of the very religious leaders who knew the scriptures the best, who studied them, who equated studying them with righteousness, 
who prided themselves on being, you know, teachers to the blind. And, um, I can't remember what the rest of that. This is what happens when I ad lib. I start on a verse, um, from Paul and I can't remember the whole thing. But they had promoted themselves as the teachers of Israel. And so Yeshua is, you know, they're being tested. Yeshua is putting them to the test. Okay, you know the scriptures. You know what the scriptures say that only Yahweh do, Yahweh does. Watch me do it. And then how are you going to react? Are you going to recognize the fulfillment of the Yahweh warrior and the, and the arm of the Lord? Or are you going to reject me? And, you know, we know how that goes. Be right back. Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to this week's Character in Context. We are talking about the two-stage healing of the blind man in Bethsaida, which, as we discussed, was an acted-out parable, because, you know, he doesn't need to do things in two steps. He was showing us something. Um, and now we are headed into um, one of the most famous episodes in... Um, in scripture, and we've got this in all the gospels, the, um, Peter identifying Yeshua as the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. All right. So now from, um, now from there, from Bethsaida, they travel 25 miles north to Mount Hermon to a region that is very important in the beliefs of second temple area Jews. Now, in two weeks, I was going to do it next week, but it's it doesn't work. In two weeks, we are going to talk about this and why what happens happens in this place and at this time. We'll be um, talking about Jubilees again, very briefly, and but mostly First Enoch. We may not talk about Jubilees. Um, as I've mentioned before, neither of these are scriptural, and um, they have too many problems to be taken seriously as scripture, but they do show us how Jews of the Second Temple period interpreted Genesis 6 with the introduction of evil on earth, not the introduction of sin, because that took place in Genesis 3. That's different. But the introduction of evil practices and gross rebellion on the earth. Mount Hermon is extremely important symbolically and perhaps even spiritually and um, real, really. Um, we'll talk about that in um, in two weeks. As for this week and next, we're, we'll just leave it with them traveling all the way north to the slope of Mount Hermon to the home of one of the Herods, Philip the half-brother of Herod Antipas, who ruled over the Galilee, and they were both sons of Herod the Great. Let's look at uh, chapter 8, verse 27 here. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? Now, as I hinted at, Caesarea Philippi was on the southwestern slope of Mount Hermon. 
near the base at an elevation of just over 1,100 feet in the vicinity of Dan and the ancient Israelite cities of Baal Gad and Baal Hermon. This was, you got to know, this is a gorgeous place, well-watered and lush, and was also a very pagan city. Always had been all the way, you know, well, always because Dan sure didn't, you know, do anything to help it. There was a grotto dedicated to the god Pan in the area dated to um, the time of Alexander the Great. The region was a gift from, Ag from Caesar Augustus to Herod the Great uh, in about um, 20 BCE. And in thanks, Herod built an imperial cult temple dedicated to the worship of Augustus. Now, the imperial cult as I have uh, not mentioned before, was a religion that revolved around deified Roman emperors at, at this point posthumously. All right. Now, I, I believe Caligula was the first emperor to demand such honors before he died. All right. I may be wrong on that, but I, I don't think I am. When... Herod died, he gave the region to his son Philip, and Philip greatly built it up into a major center for pagan worship and renamed it Caesarea Philippi after Tiberius Caesar and himself. <laughs> Caesarea Philippi became the capital city of the region of Trachonitis. I don't know. I always mean to look up at Golanitis and and I always, sometimes I do and then I forget how to pronounce it. Um, this was Philip's home. But right now they were simply traveling there. Okay. They are on the way, which is one of our next big themes. First, he is on his way to Mount Hermon for an earth shattering encounter. And from there we will be on the way to Jerusalem for his final Passover. <clears throat> and he asks his disciples the same question that he and others have been asking about him. Let's look really quick at those questions. The first incident is found in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were there with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, and so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? <clears throat> now, amazingly, this seems to be the first time that the disciples are actually questioning his identity. The reality has been veiled and had to be veiled. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.8, it had to be a secret until it was too late to stop the crucifixion from happening. Um, starting actually in verse 6, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, 
although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, the second um, time this question comes up, as a, pre as, as a prelude to the tragic end of John the Baptist, uh, which served as a foreshadowing of Yeshua's eventual fate in Mark. Um, is in, it's in Mark 6, uh, verses 14 through 16. However, this time the question isn't being asked by insiders, but by outsiders. And King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work with him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Julius, when, <laughs> Julius I'm thinking one thing in my head, okay, and, and saying another. But when Herod heard it, he had said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. I, <laughs> I don't know. I was just thinking of Julius Caesar at the same time for just in totally crazy reasons. So. Sometimes I get like this. So his identity is an enigma, has been an enigma all this time, because unlike us, they have no narrator. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but, you know, maybe we don't want to really think of anything that way anymore. As I'm writing this, um, there are still three stickers to go. And as I am recording this, um, it's January 3rd. <laughs> you know, I laugh, but it's been a very trying year. You know, started out with the um, the tragic death of a young friend and the daughter of dear friends, and then COVID and all the needless division among believers because of masks and vaccination, as though these are worth dividing over. And my son Andrew's three surgeries, you know, one the day before Sukkot and the two a month later. But now he's doing amazing and has a new job, paying more than the one he got fired from after missing too much work due to his shunt malfunction headaches. If 2020 is hindsight from now on, I think we should just keep looking forward. Okay, so let's get back to this. Uh, neither outsiders or insiders have figured out his identity up to this point, despite his doing so many things that scripture claims are the sole and exclusive rights and abilities of Yahweh. Things like, but not limited to, forgiving sin and walking on water. Add to this now the healing of the blind. So the moment of truth has arrived and Yeshua will be responsible for the next two inquiries as to who he is. Um, his first question, what do I, who do other people say I am? Verse 28, and they told him John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. So this is no shock. We've already had this account from chapter 6. We've heard this before. But there's more to this than it seems. You know, one, there must have been a lot of people whom Yeshua reached who were only familiar with the reputation of John the Baptist. Obviously, anyone who knew them both wouldn't believe this. There might well have been <clears throat> a family resemblance as their mothers were both cousins, you know, via Mary's mother, who was from the house of Judah via her father, Eli, and from the house of Aaron via her mother, um, according to the, her genealogy in Luke 3. But anyone who knew them would know that Yeshua was around before the death of John. As I mentioned in my teaching on Herod and John, John never worked a single miracle. 
but there was probably speculation that a risen, vindicated John in a resurrection body would be able to work miracles. And so this is quite possibly what was behind the mindset um, that Yeshua was actually John part two. Okay. Elijah, of course, was the forerunner of the coming of Yahweh. Let's look at Malachi three. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, said the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So, you know, this sounds like fun. Um, but this was John the Baptist who was preparing the way before Yeshua, the arm of the Lord from Isaiah, the Yahweh warrior, the Lord himself here in Malachi. A lot of the rebukes in the passage, you know, make their way into those leveled against the Jerusalem leadership in Yeshua's teachings. <clears throat> but the people also suggest that he is one of the prophets, or in other words, like the prophets of old, the prophets God sent to the nation until the time of Malachi, when they believed that formal prophecy ceased and Yahweh stopped sending his messengers. That was a definite paradigm they were working with. No more prophets. So Yahweh was speaking through teachers instead, like the teacher of righteousness from the Qumran sect, or, <coughs> excuse me, or the Pharisees and their scribes attributing their traditions backward to Ezra and the men of the great assembly, and even back to Moses. Goodness sakes, my throat. But this is a stunning statement that they um, are considering the possibility that Yeshua is entirely something old and entirely new, a new quote unquote dispensation, for lack of a better word, that Yahweh is once again on speaking terms with his exiled people. Yes, exiled, because they were not self-ruled. You know, you need to see the prayer of Nehemiah 9. He specifically says this. And, and you know, maybe he's doing wonders and speaking to them again. Perhaps this meant that they're returning to how God used to communicate, and you can see why the leadership would not welcome it, as it would weaken their hold over the people. Same old story, new century, right? Verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say I am? <coughs> okay, moment of truth here. They're on their way to one of the northernmost points of the ancient kingdom of Israel, a pagan worship center then, and, and nothing's changed now. They are very much in rival territory. They've been speculating, undoubtedly talking amongst themselves. But the whole thing with the bread might have gotten through to them, you know? He asked them point blank when they were bickering about bread and wondering how they were going to eat. Verse 17, this is from um, 
excuse me. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having no eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? In other words, don't you understand who I am yet and what I'm capable of? And this was a while ago because it was when they were on the boat, you know, headed to Bethsaida before the healing of the blind man, and now they're on a 25-mile journey north to Mount Hermon. They've had a lot of time to mull this over. So what conclusion do they come to? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. Boom! At last! At last! Peter says something worth saying. <laughs> Which, of course, means that he's going to blow it when we finish up the chapter um, next week. But what's Peter saying? Peter's saying that Yeshua is the divine, pre-existent Son of God, right? No. Peter doesn't have a narrator. To Peter, all this means is that Yeshua is the anointed King of Israel, the long-awaited Messiah, come at last to save the Jews from foreign occupation once and for all, and to regather the exiles from the four corners of the earth. At last, we have the successor to Simon Maccabeus. Let me read from uh, 1 Maccabees 14, verses 41 through 43. This is the very end. And the Jews and their priests decided that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever until a trustworthy prophet should arise, and that he should be governor over them, and that he should take charge of the sanctuary and appoint men over its tasks and over the country and the weapons and the strongholds, and that he should take charge of the sanctuary, and that he should be obeyed by all, and that all contracts in the country should be written in his name, and that he should be clothed in purple and wear gold. <clears throat> okay. They were looking for a prophet during the days of Simon to reveal to them the identity of the Davidic king. But in the meantime... They place the last surviving Hasmonean of the sons of Matthias over them as prince. Prince, not king. They were very specific. His grandsons were the first to call themselves king. And they were messed up people. I mean, the one imprisoned his whole family and it was starving his mom to death so his, bro his older brother wouldn't become prince. All right? And he declared himself king is evil 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 simon you know was an interim measure until the messiah came and later his son john hyrcanus and then things just got nuts um and this was great news for peter and the others all right that that yeshua was the messiah after all they were his inner circle the insiders the guys who would most benefit when their horse came in first and destroyed the Romans and their nation was on top again. You know, it's like, 
can I get a high five? And it's like, now the messianic expectations of the nation were actually varied at this point, but getting rid of the heathens and being self-ruling was pretty much on everyone's menu of what to expect. They believed that the Messiah would cleanse the temple of corruption. You know, um, the corruption under the uh, wicked Sadducean high priesthood of the family of Annas and Caiaphas and Annas's um, other sons that all served as high priests from one time or another and all profited from it. Um, they believed the Romans would be overcome once and for all and that he would usher in an age of righteousness and justice. But why did it take so long for the disciples to figure out his identity? Well, frankly, because Yeshua perfectly fit into none of the existing categories. He wasn't quite the priestly Messiah that some sects thought there, you know, would arise, although he did meet some of the requirements. He had no army like David, so he wasn't a shoe in there either. He wasn't what the Pharisees were expecting because he disagreed with them so often. He was quite the enigma. But I mean, at least the disciples are seeming to head in the right direction. And I imagine they can't wait to tell everyone when they get to where they are headed. Verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. <laughs> uh, what? Oh, man. <laughs> they finally understand that, you know, as N.T. Wright says, he is not just announcing a kingdom, but declaring himself as the king. But it's a secret. Well, it's also a dangerous secret. They are headed to the home of one of the Herods, Philip. And then they will turn around and travel back through Galilee, ruled over by Herod Antipas. And then they will head to Jerusalem under Roman governorship and occupation. A new king in town has only one of two fates possible. He will either destroy the pretenders or he will be executed by them. If they begin to tell people then an army will form around him whether he wants it or not. People will die. You know, just from following after him to Jerusalem, if he publicly admits to being the renewed Davidic king, people in Caesarea Philippi will die if, if, they, if they announce it there. Um... People will die in the Galilee. Very likely Yeshua would die before he ever reached Jerusalem. If Yeshua is slaughtered on the way, then his death is not going to be a fulfillment of scriptures. It'll just be another one of those guys that they talk about, like uh, Thutis and um, Judas, the Galilean, and, and the guy from Alexandria or any one of the messianic pretenders over the past over 2,000 years now. Bar Kokhba, all right? Of course, he's the, he's the one that's really remembered. It must be in Jerusalem. It must be on the Passover. There must be the nation there as witness to his death, and there is just 
too much at stake now, you know, to risk premature exposure. And so next week's lesson is going to be very heartbreaking for the disciples because they've just received the best news ever. And okay, so they've just been told not to blab about it. And so they'd say, okay, well, you know, it's, it's, it'll be worth waiting because now we know that our lives are just going to be endless blessing and we are going to be honored. And, you know, people will bow before us when we're going down the street. You know, they're having Haman dreams right now. <laughs> going back to Esther. They're thinking like fleshly people. And we all do, you know. Oh, when we don't have servants' hearts, that's, that's the way we all are. And it's only because of the cross and the new creation that we can have servants' hearts anyway. But what Yeshua has to do next is completely deflate all of their expectations. They think they know what a Messiah is. They think they've got a pretty good bead on things. They think they know what's ahead. But everyone's been wrong, or they've been right in the wrong ways. They haven't understood who the true enemy is that Yeshua has come to defeat. They don't understand that it's humiliation and not exaltation that Yeshua and they are going to experience in ministry. They don't understand that it's not adoring crowds, but crowds that are bent on stoning them sometimes. Yeshua has got to deal with these expectations before things go too far. And we'll talk about that next week. Music